Luke chapter 2. If you've heard me preach over the years, I've used occasionally the Paul Harvey illustration. He used to do a show on TV, the rest of the story, and he would tell you about a story that was behind a story. And uh, he did that. And the very end of it, he'd always go, and you'd go like, wow, I never knew that before. And then he'd end up every, every time. Now you know the rest of the story. And one of them, most recent, you know, I read recently was about a Christmas story. And he says there was this little church in a little town in, Bo- in a Bohemian town in Germany uh, back in 1818. And they had a church, and they had a service for Christmas coming up. But on Christmas Eve... Uh, They needed to have songs ready, but Franz Gruber, who was the organist, went into his church, and he was getting ready because they had all these magnificent, majestic songs they were going to play, but he did not realize until he started to try to practice that all that mice had got into the organ and had ate away the inner workings of it, so when he went to use the pedals, nothing worked. The organ wouldn't be ready by the next day for Christmas. He didn't know what to do. So he asked uh, one of the guys he worked with, and I, I think it was, a, it was actually a priest, and he uh, said, we don't have anything for Christmas. He goes, I want you to go home, and I want you to do your best today. And he started laughing. No, he goes, I mean today. I want you to write a song. And he goes, well, um, we'll have the choir sing it, but he goes, there won't be any time to practice it. So the choir was going to sing with the guy playing the guitar and the priest. They were all going to sing a song for Christmas that he hadn't written yet. So he went home and he wrote down some thoughts that came to his mind. And then he wrote all the music for it. And they got up in 1818, that little church, by themselves with just a guy who played the guitar. That was the only instrument. Sang with a choir who sang the song for the first time when they actually sang it and never had practiced it. And it became one of the most famous Christmas hymns of all time, cherished by a lot of people. Can you think about what that song was? Yeah, Silent Night. Silent Night. And if Paul Harvey was here, he'd go, now you know the rest of the story. (laughs) I, I thought of that this week because that's kind of what Christmas is. We know all the parts of Christmas. Right? You know that there's a star in the sky and the magi are following it and well after his birth they come and you know the shepherds out in the field and you know the angel announcements to Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and you know all the things and they find him in a manger and you know all those stories. But what's behind all those stories? Like what's the story behind Silent Light? What's the story behind Christmas? And I would tell you this, it's the story of his glory. That's why Christmas exists, because if you read all of the gospel narratives of the infancy and birth of Jesus, you'll find that this story of Christmas, however form it takes in each gospel, is not a beginning of a a new story. It is a continuation of an old story. I encourage you to read, um, if you put in Stephen Hawthorne, the story of his glory. It's about a 10, 12-page introductory, uh, I would say, paper he wrote many, many years ago, but good. And it is about how all of the Bible is one story 
connected by God revealing his glory all throughout leading up to Christmas. And one of the courses that you have to take, well, I did in seminary, is you have to understand how the whole Bible fits together. There is a book I read when I was 22 that I've read multiple times because it always fascinates me about how all the Bible fits together in one big story, and it's called the story of his glory. You can see that if you look at our text. Look at chapter 2, and there, we're going to look at 3, verses um, 9 and verses 14, I believe, and 20. Now, what did the pattern that we talked about tonight was this. How does God do it? Two directions. He reveals his glory, we receive it, and then reflect it. Watch how the Christmas story works because this is the story and the pattern that's been happening all through the Old Testament and now climaxes in the image of God's glory being brought into the world in Jesus. The revelation of his glory, chapter 2, verse 9. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were afraid. So here you have the angel, who the same, I think the angel would probably be the same one, I'm not sure, but it doesn't say altogether. But remember when Gabriel upbraided Zechariah because he didn't believe the words? He says, I'm, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of the Lord. Meaning, that's where he got his glory from. That's why everyone who sees an angel is afraid. Not because they're from another world, quote-unquote, or they're big and large, which they are, all of that, but because they reflect God's glory because they stand in his presence. So Zacharias saw that. But here's the point of it. God is coming through the angels, reflecting his glory. They saw the glory of the Lord around them. And then, eventually, an angel host, which would have been not one angel, just not one angel, but like Mary got, and Joseph got, and Zechariah got. But the shepherds, of all people, they get the single angel followed by a multitude, which we know in the Bible is probably thousands upon thousands. So if that didn't frighten them the first time with one, a few thousand would probably make sure it was. And the glory of God is that powerful. So you have that in verse 14. It says, glory to God in the highest. So the angels are revealing God's glory and responding to it, but that's one direction. At the end of the story, the third use of the Greek word dadza, which means the same as kabod in the Hebrew, it's weight. It's God's glory, his intrinsic worth, right? Glory to God in the highest. And then verse 20 says, and the shepherds return. Now they're going to do their part in the pattern. They're going to receive it and reflect it. And they were glorifying God and praising God. By the way, those are synonymous. That's why they're next to each other in participle form, right? They are glorifying and praising are equal. They're parallel. So when you glorify God, you're worshiping, you're praising him. You're expressing and reflecting back his infinite value and worth by what you say. That is the infant story. That is the story of the glory. This is why Christmas was done this way. Now let me show you another thing. But he, and we're going to get to our paper. If you read the story of the glory, you're going to say, why the angels to the shepherds? But there is no light. There's a light in the sky, which you can debate. You can read tons of material on what the star was. 
Was it a real star? Some people think it was a comet. Some people think it was an angel. Some people think, which I lean toward, it was God's glory. Um, We don't know for sure, but it was obviously showing God's greatness. But in our text, what I wanted to see is that it didn't happen over the manger where Jesus was. It pointed to him, but he didn't have outward glory. See, the angels did, but he didn't. None of it did. But wait, Luke is going to not leave us hanging. Hold your finger here and turn to chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 28. I'm reading my old Bible tonight. My new King James. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things, Luke 9, 28, that Peter, John, and James went up on the mountain to pray with him. And as they prayed, the appearance of his face, meaning Jesus, was altered. This is where we get the word transfigured. And his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared, circle it, in glory. And spoke of his, literally the Greek word is exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with them were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they, mark it again, they saw his glory. They saw, and the two of them who stood there with him, then it happened as they were parting, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles. Because every time God's glory is around, there was supposed to be an exp- a mediator of it, tabernacles, temples. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were very fearful as they entered the, the, the cloud. And then it says the voice of God came. Let me give you some examples. There's only two times in Luke's gospel that the verb overshadowed is ever used. You now know this one. What was the first one? Yes, the Spirit of God overshadowed Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 35. The other time it's used, and I'll give you this for your own study, which would make a great message sometime. It's also used by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. And you know the verse probably by heart. Maybe not the reference, because nobody knows references, right? (laughs) My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your, complete in your weakness. So I glory or boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may, what's the word? Rest upon me. You know what it is? Overshadowed. So it's not just for Mary. It's not just to show and tabernacle Jesus' glory. What is Paul saying? You know what my glory is? Listen to this. I'm going to show you why. You know what my, and the word boast is the word glory. You know what my boast, my glory is? Is that the power of Jesus, and I would add, the same power that impregnated Mary for her virgin birth, the same one that exudes from Jesus because he is the glory of God. Paul says that same power exists in you and me and is displayed in our weaknesses. In our weaknesses. So can I tell you this? Here's the pattern of God revealing his glory and we receive and reflect it. 
How does it work? Well, he does it from humiliation to exaltation. I gave you a paper tonight, if you have it. And I wanted to show you what starts with the Christmas story of the shepherds following that pattern is a theme all the way through Luke's gospel. Because we don't want to begin, or Luke doesn't want you and I to think that, hey, if you're not part of the Christmas story, then this isn't for you. That this was a one-off thing, and, and God reveals his glory, and it's not really that for anybody and everybody. You've got to be someone special, like the Christmas story. And he wants to prove to us, no, it's a bunch of people. In fact, it's what he desires for everyone, and he's going to show you some things. And so we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study. Now, I want you to think with me. I, don't, I can't give you a bunch of free time, you know, with no... You know, okay, take 10 minutes and write down what you got. But we are going to take a little bit, okay? I'm going to have you read all these. Here's what, I'm going to cut down your time necessary. There are, and I don't think it's an accident, but I don't want to too much dramatize it. There are seven stories, and I call them glory stories. Seven in the whole, new, whole book of Luke. They are people who have God's glory revealed about who Jesus is by what he does. His extrinsic glory is communicating his intrinsic glory. Remember that? There's seven stories, okay? And they all go, and I'm gonna give you part of the answers. And they go from the shepherds in the story all the way to the centurion standing next to Jesus on the cross when he dies. It goes from these seven stories cover his humiliation, becoming a man at birth and a little baby, all the way through his life and ministry to the time where he's dead. So from his birth to his death, these glory stories take place. Okay? Now I'm going to give you another hint. The one we just read about the transfiguration, you have to ask yourself if you're Bible study, why would God want Luke to put it in this part of the gospel? Why that story here? Not just that it happened chronologically there. What's the purpose? Luke has, as a major part of his gospel, in chapter 9 and verses 51 and following, all the way to past Jericho and Zacchaeus until Jesus arrives in the temple area and cries over Jerusalem that you've missed your day of visitation and peace. It's called the travel narrative for 10 entire chapters. And every event in those chapters are events that take place when Jesus is walking to Jerusalem from Galilee for the very last time in his life. It's called the travel narrative. And a bunch of these glory stories, not all of them, but some of them happen on the way to that road. So he wants you to say this. See, I want to show you my glory, but it isn't going to be the brightness of an angel. This, God's going to show you his glory in a different way. He's going to show you what he does in people and what he does for people at the very end. And your job in the next few minutes, should you take this mission, um, you're to see this. I want you to read these things. All of them are underlined on your paper, who glorified God. I want you to write down real quickly, there's seven of them, who it is that glorified God in the text, who it is, and what Jesus did for them to evoke a response of glory. Who they are, and try to be as specific as you can, and it's not always an individual, sometimes it's a group. So who is it 
that sees his glory and what was it that he did to make them respond that way? So I'm gonna give you about a minute or two and write that down on your paper if you have a pen or think about it in your mind and I wanna make some points with those things that you observe. I'm not looking for the people who, you're not looking for their names. What kind of people are they? We should have the Jeopardy music on or something, I think. <laughs> See, Steve can do anything. Oh, you, you told him to? Okay. Is that really yours? Oh, Steve, I gave you credit for that. <laughs> Okay, that's all you get. I know that was hardly anything, right? Number one, you have that one already. But, and as we're making the, giving the answers, think of the pattern, right? What's the pattern? God reveals his glory. People receive and reflect it back to him, right? And the pattern always goes humiliation to exaltation. So with that being the pattern that Jesus lays out for us, you should expect the people who are in this pattern to be a certain kind of people, all right? What are they? The first one, shepherds. Very humiliated, can I say, humble, outcast people, okay? We don't know their names. Second one, what would you say about the one, Luke 4, 14 and 15? Who are they? Yes? Um, he's just getting finished with his temptation. Right. And, and now it doesn't really tell us who they are. It just says he comes back and a report is made about him. And then he teaches the people. Surrounding country from where? What area are they from? What's that? Yes, Galilee. Yep. It's an area of Galilee. What do we know about Galilee? What is it called? Galilee of the Gentiles, right? Can anything good come out of... Mm-hmm. So you got Galilee and the Gentiles. So it doesn't seem like much. Let me tell you this, though. All the seven stories, what don't they include? Where is... Any of the people who glorify God, are any of them from Jerusalem? No. Are any of them religious leaders? Any of them scribes, Pharisees, or priests? No. So it isn't just that it's Galilee, which is not very highly thought of. It's that it is from there, and it's not where you'd expect it to be, because there's a pattern to be followed. Third one. Luke 5, twice actually in this episode. Who is this? What is this story about? 
the paralyzed man and those who brought him to Jesus. Okay, so we're keeping track. We have shepherds, a group of people not from Jerusalem and Galilee which have no spiritual clout. You have a man who has a great problem physically, major issue. Four, what's the next one? A widowed mother whose social status is as low as it possibly can get. And her son has died, which means the only possible income that she had was dependent on him, and now he's dead. She's about as low on the status pole as you could get. And Jesus raises him from the dead. So you have a widowed woman, low, shepherds, Galileans, and someone who's a paralytic. Do you see the pattern? Let's keep going. What about the next one? Luke 13. Now we have a woman with a disabling spirit. Let's keep mounting it up. So now we have sick people. We have diseased people. We have socially low caste people. And now we have a woman and she's got a problem, and everyone would have seen her problem as her being punished and cursed by God. And the Bible tells us that she had it for a very long time. Chapter 18. What do you want me to do for you as he's leaving Jericho? Who is this? A blind man. You are freed from your disability. That's what the ESV says. So you have, the last one is what? Chapter 23, verses 46. Who is this? Yes, so let's put it together. This is a conglomeration of nobodies. Galileans, shepherds, people who are sick, diseased, blind, major problems. We have men, we have women. We have Jews, we have a Gentile. Do you see what this story is doing and the pattern of it? It's exactly what God does. God most often does not reveal his glory to who? To all the most religious people, powerful people in the world, he doesn't. He displays it to the lowly, right? And he exalts them and shows his miraculous redemptive power by what they, he does for them. So what does he do in these texts to, to get them to glorify him? What does he do? He shows great acts of power, What does his power do? A guy who can't walk now can. A guy who is dead is now alive. A guy who is blind can now see, right? And on and on the story goes because there's power. But the power is what? How does God reveal his glory? He reveals it in our weaknesses. That's the power. That's how God works in our lives and in yours. So let's go back and put it all together and make applications, If the pattern is that God reveals his glory and he does it primarily and he chooses 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the weak things of this world to put to shame the strong, because that's what God does. Why does he do that? Why did God reveal it to shepherds? Why to women who were Disease. Why a guy who's blind? Why people who have no status? Why not Jerusalem? Why not the social elites at the temple? Why not a Sadducee? Why not any of those guys? Because what is God's glory? 
It's his infinite value and worth. And none of them had the humility to see who he was. All of those miracles that he did point to the miracle, the last one in the book of Luke in chapter 24, where a centurion stands by and says, he glorified God. Surely this was a righteous man. You can't even get the most powerful way that God reveals his glory. He did it through all the miracles, but he revealed it greatest. The greatest way he revealed it was what? On the cross. That's his greatest revelation of glory is his death. His death. But if you read 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, it says, For he was crucified in weakness. Jesus, why? Because that's what God does. He displays it. So let me ask you this. What are some ways, whether it's people in our church or me in your own life, tell me how you can make much of God. You can make him to be as infinitely valuable as he really is, and others can see it and glorify him back. How do you do it when you face weakness? How could we do it? How would your sickness be different? How would be your cancer be different? How would your loss of job and financial troubles, how would it be different if you looked at it and saw it as an opportunity to show and display God's glory in it. Paul believed that. He believed that his thorn in the flesh had purpose. And the purpose was that God would show how powerful he was when Paul had none. And, he, and not only, listen to this, listen, not only did he do that, but he says he boasts in it. He boasts in it. What would that look like today in 21st century America in your life and mine? How would we display God's power in our weaknesses? Answers? Yes. Right. Amen. So here's how you do it. In your weakness, you're still on mission, and that's primary, right? So you're in the hospital, and you're there because your nurse might need Christ. And so even when you're not feeling so great, you're still thinking of the needs of others. That's awesome. God, glory. he shows his glory. It's displayed when your weakness doesn't stop you from his power working as a witness through you. That's excellent.
How else might it work? How does it work in your life? I'm thinking of two people in here who had, did, had similar things happen. Mike and John. <laughs> I think about when you get a kidney, right? Or you give one. What does that mean? So you're giving, making yourself weak to give someone else something sacrificially through surgery, right? I think that glorifies God, right? In your own pain, in your own weaknesses. I think that when you give financially, and when you may not have a lot on your own, but you give it to someone else, I think of how much it glorifies God when the people in 2 Corinthians 8 gave to people whose needs were also great, but they did it out of their poverty. Jesus left his glory, it says, in 2 Corinthians 8, right? And, and, and became poor so that we could be rich. See, he went down so that we could go up. Those are awesome examples. When you're sick, when you can sacrifice, when you give money, right? Those are ways that I think that you can give glory to God, many others. But think about it this year, in 2024. All of us, to one degree or another, are going to face weaknesses. The question is, will we reflect God's glory in them by the way that we respond, not just verbally, but visually in our lives to all the weaknesses we face? And you know what? I would say, and she's not here tonight, and you're probably listening. If you are, it's okay. Go over if you want to be cheered up. Go talk to Karen Lestina for a while. Pastor Dave and I went over there a week or two ago. Here's Karen Lestina. You know all the things that happened with her face and all the things that took place. And, the, and she has to write things, or Greg is an awesome interpreter for her. And, and, but I tell you what, go see all the things that she's gone through, and all she wants to do is talk about everybody else and what she can do for them and how's so-and-so doing. And blah, blah. And the woman reflects God's glory. She really does. In her pain, in her loss, and in, in having a mask on, and, and, and listen to her talk. For years, she's eating food through a tube. Years. And you know how that works with me and how that means <laughs> food for everything, right? But she does. She meets everything through a tube. And yet she's so happy, so, so joyous, blessing other people that I got to go, and I'll show you, and give a blessing to someone in her name. And that person almost fell on the ground and cried. That's how tremendous it was. And I haven't even had a chance to tell her that personally. Let me tell you this, we can. And you don't, see, you can be a shepherd, you can be blind. And all, you can have all kinds of things. That isn't the point. The point is, is God infinitely valuable? And when you show, will you demonstrate it by your choices in the most difficult times? Anybody can do it when things are good. But it's when we're weak. And we embrace it, that God reflects his glory through us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us at Christmas time. I would guess that I hope our church, at least, during the 12 days of Christmas and otherwise, that we can tell glory stories all the time. Luke's filled with them, seven of them, because that's who you reveal your glory to most. Humble people people who have been brought low, people that can see your glory and who you are because they've seen what you have done with their lives. 
I'm so thankful for the examples of people in our church like that and so many more that we haven't mentioned. God, may the story of your glory continue as it did in the pages of Scripture through the lives of people at Faith Baptist Church that we, as a group, as a community, and as individuals might reflect your glory to a world who so desperately needs to see Jesus and all that he is. Father, you are infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy, and we want to live lives that reflect that truth in all of our decisions, small and great, that we wouldn't just make good decisions, we'd make God ones. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing in Christ's name. Amen.